So if Angstrom and Epso thought the doctor and her friends were bonuses, does that make the TARDIS a bonus room? Chip, you are fired from this podcast. Dang. Please join me as we follow the 13th Doctor across the sands of South Africa, over the surface of the planet Desolation, and frankly to the ends of the Earth because I adore her, for the October 14th episode of This Week in Time Travel. All right, Chip, I guess you can be allowed back on the podcast. I'm sorry, Alyssa. Well, I kind of need you to edit this, so I suppose (laughs) this is a necessary relationship. (laughs) Great. It makes me feel so good to know that all my relationships are necessary now. Thank you so much. (laughs) Oh, man, what a week of Doctor Who goodness. If you'll indulge me, can I luxuriate in this week before we start talking about the Ghost Monument? Warren, you might want to stop listening now because he's going to get into stats. Let's take a quick look at the news and we'll just breeze past these stats. But as those of us who were sort of breathless on the edge of our seats, wanting to know if the public was going to pick up what Chris Chibnall was putting down, you know, record ratings, record ratings, 8.2 million viewers overnight in the UK. Uh, That was way ahead of Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi's debuts uh, and it was ahead of Twice Upon a Time. BBC America was looking really good, too. Not quite as high as Deep Breath, but still 2.6 million viewers, 48% above the season 10 premiere. I think people love this Doctor and are feeling pretty good about this season. I think they are. People are here for it. We've got fantastic new group of fans who are coming in to watch the show. BBC really seems to be investing in it. BBC America, for all that they can't figure out how to broadcast an episode without annoying their audience, is trying to bring in a new generation of American viewers. Uh, It's interesting times. They have spent so much time on marketing this season. I mean, Jamila Jamil interviewing Jodie Whittaker on Last Call with Carson Daly. I'm not a I don't care so much about Last Call for Carson Daly, but I'm a big Good Place fan. And Jamila Jamil and Jodie Whittaker on a couch together. That's just my aesthetic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And critical reviews for the new uh, season have been pretty high as well. Although the one sour note continues to be the reaction to Grace's death. Yeah, uh, we said last week that we were going to amplify some of the own voices that were reviewing that episode and the concerns about what Alyssa and I really considered to be the fridging of a another black female character, honestly. We weren't happy. Neither was Ty Gooden, who reviewed it in Hypable. She wrote that it was a tired trope and, quote, I'm not saying that women cannot die in a TV series, but if their death is not tied to the success of the overall plot or to wrap up their own established storyline, then it's just a move to build up another, usually male, character, close quote. And we do like it when you listen to our podcast, but when we send you to other podcasts, it's for a really, really good reason. Tarbis, in uh, their review of The Woman Who Fell to Earth, said, in this episode, the doctor makes new friends, Yaz wants something more, and Ryan watches someone he loves gets fridged in favor of a white dude. So yeah, that's it. That's that's the problem. Yeah, it's pretty harsh, and we still have so much to like about The Woman Who Fell to Earth, but... It's worth pointing out and it's worth dealing with because it is a tired trope and it is a harmful trope. 
Yeah. So if you didn't quite have as strong as reaction as we did to it, I'd highly recommend reading and listening to Ty Gooden and Tarbis. Really listen to what Black women are saying here and why it's impacting them so deeply. Links are in the show notes. Absolutely. Alyssa had much more to say about this and her review of the episode at whovianfeminism.tumblr.com dropped yesterday as we record this on the Saturday. And she just goes into a lot more depth. And it's a very excellent review. And thank you for sharing it with the world, Alyssa. Thank you. There's also lots of big finish news that came out. There's going to be another 10 and Donna series with Woo. some extra cribbins in it. Ah, ah, yes, I can't wait. That's going to be excellent. We also have two more series of River Song, including a Talons of Wang Chiang crossover because hey. people were asking for that. I don't know. Uh. And there's also going to be a new Short Trips anthology featuring Big Finish's first 12th Doctor story written by our own very own best friend, Lizbeth Miles. Liz, oh my god, I cannot believe you are doing this. I imagine there's going to be a lot of squeeing on the episode of the Verity podcast that drops on Thursday. I hope Liz is on that one, but congratulations to Liz. Big Finish has not done a 12th Doctor story to this point, and you're the one who writes the first one. Yay! Oh, I hope there's a Time Monster reference in it. Oh, there'd better be. And last but certainly not least, we have a couple of articles written by Twit-adjacent folk, including a Twit-centric folk. You have an article for Sartorial Geek. What is that? It is a deep dive into Jodie Whittaker's costume. I talk about the doctor's own fashion sense, which is basically alien approximating humanity. I talk about Jodie Whittaker and Ray Holman's collaboration on the costume and the surprisingly radical and feminist history of the particular articles that Jodie is wearing. Majority of this was written before some of the more recent interviews came out, so some of those details may be missing. Uh, but I hope you still enjoy it anyway. It should be just as easily readable if you have not been keeping up with all of that news. And where can people find Sartorial Geek? What's that all about? It is a magazine produced by Jordan Denae. Uh, you've probably seen her at any top convention where she's been selling geeky fashion and clothing. And she's been putting together this magazine. It's in its third issue now. And if you go onto my Twitter account, you will be able to find links to it. And I believe we're also going to drop a link to find issue three in the show notes. And friend of the show and head over feels editor and... Just all-around great person, Sage Young was one of the people who was part of the Jodie Whittaker Media Blitz. She has a delightful interview with Jodie over at Bustle. Link is in the show notes. And finally, one last very, very important update. Alyssa has culottes now. The Her Universe culottes are really nice, guys. They have such deep pockets. I can fit a whole book in there. I fit... Two paperback Target novels in there. They're really great. <laughs> is your cosplay complete? My cosplay is almost complete. I need to do a fair amount of work on the culottes and also the coat that I have. They need to get tailored. I'm going to talk to a family member of mine who's very good at this kind of stuff and see if she'd be willing to help me out. And then I also need boots because I found the actual boots that Jody wears and they're something like 
425 US dollars. So the nearest copy that I found is $278. Still, uh. uh. Yeah, I may go and buy those boots because they're really nice fall boots and those will last me probably 10 years. So might be worth it to not have to buy boots so frequently. But I've never put down that much money on any single article of clothing ever in my life. So I don't know if I'll be able to actually like emotionally do that. I wasn't aware that any pair of footwear would survive more than a year in a Washington, D.C. winter, but uh, surprise me. Nice boots do. Okay, then. So let's pause and reflect for a moment on culottes, and then let's talk about the Ghost Monument. Are you done reflecting on culottes? I am done reflecting on culottes. Now we need to talk about the Ghost Monument, because wow, what an episode. Really hit you, huh? It was remarkably tense like i was pretty tense throughout the entire thing watching and seeing what was going to happen i think that there was a lot of interesting moments in this story you know there's been some conversation very very briefly amongst some of the people that we know about whether this story or uh the previous story was more of a standout moment for the doctor i think i fall in the uh slightly less popular opinion that this is actually more of a standout story for the doctor not that she has any brilliant monologues but that she is the quiet force throughout it that makes the whole thing go you know that moment where Yaz wakes up and she is arguing absolutely furious with Epso and they are fighting back and forth about how they are going to get this ship to survive a crash landing on the planet and going over all that technical gobbledygook, but also being able to pinpoint in on that character emotionally and, you know, really kind of take him down a peg or two and say, our lives are not worth your pride. That, for me, is quintessentially the doctor. I think she really had those excellent standout moments of being able to precisely get into the middle of a situation, knock everyone down a peg, and get people to do what they need to do to survive. She's got a lot of different looks to her in this episode. I've definitely got a Troughton edge to her during this episode because there are several times when she's actually yelping when they're running. <laughs> you know, that yeah. felt that felt really Troughton-y to me. And maybe I am just really, really overthinking the contrast between the 12th Doctor and the 13th Doctor. Maybe I've just imprinted way too strongly on those moments when Peter Capaldi was sort of forbidding and in control and stuff like that. She lets her shield crack from time to time in this episode. Right at the end when the racers disappear and it initially appears that there's going to be no TARDIS and no way off the planet, you know, it's up to her friends to bring her back from the brink of despair. Other doctors had those moments. The ninth doctor was convinced that he had killed himself and Rose when the gas zombies were coming after them and the unquiet dead for example. It's striking to me that she is so in control and so much the driving force in this episode, and 
she has real moments of uh, vulnerability and frustration and almost like fifth doctor tetchiness at moments as well. I'm not sure which doctor she is, but she's totally the doctor and I'm totally captivated by her. But I'm still trying to get a hand, handle on her. You know, I think it's one of the things of I see sort of like I discussed in my review, there are echoes of previous doctors in her performance. But she is really making her own impression on the role. You know, I think one of the interesting things is that she is such a standout individual that it's hard to peg her down. You know, Jodie Whittaker did not watch Doctor Who extensively. She watched it here or there. For sure. um, but she's she's not extensively drawing on any other performance other than what she wants to do on her own for this. What we can see as being echoes of previous Doctor is probably Chibnall's influence mm-hmm. because he is the uber fan here and he is the one writing the role. And he can bring those echoes in. But Whitaker is entirely stamping out her own personality on this. You know, she is a lot of different things altogether. She's hectic energy. She's amazing physical comedy. Just very, very expressive. It's an amazing thing to really watch. You know, when I was writing my review for The Woman Who Fell to Earth, I was sort of deliberately teasing out the ways that she was similar to previous doctors. But this is the one where I stopped, where, you know, I haven't even really stopped to think about who else is she drawing from here because she is so individually on her own. You know, I think it's like when we were in the early days of Matt Smith and we knew he had extensively watched all of Doctor Who to try to get ready for the role, and he was drawing deliberately on Troughton. You know, we we could see where those influences were, but as he went on, that became less and less prominent. He had, you know, found and inhabited his own role there. I think I'm already there with Jody. I think Jody yeah. has already really stamped out her own unique individual Doctor. I think also Chippenall's idea of who the Doctor is. When she says in the first episode, I'm just a traveler, I think that that's really playing into these first couple of episodes as well. She's not in a situation yet, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how the character handles it. Like the last season, the Doctor had a mission to rehabilitate Missy. You know, right now, the 13th Doctor doesn't really have a mission. She just helps where she can, and she is... The circumstances come up where she needs to get Graham, Ryan, and Yaz back home. But they're still reacting to current situations, and I have the feeling that they're going to be reacting to a situation next week, about which more later. Um, I am looking forward to whatever missions or sense of mission the 13th Doctor is going to have going forward. You know, I'd be fine if she doesn't have one, though. You know, I, I feel like we've kind of exhausted those at this point. Like, I'm kind of done with the doctor being so deeply drawn into a mission in terms of like, am I a good man? Arcs that go on for years and years and years of cracks in the universe and mysterious girls. I'm kind of really done with that. I don't mind long arcs, but I also really would kind of like to see the doctor as aimless traveler again and really make that kind of deliberate of let's not do that. Let's let her be a wanderer, be a traveler, find things that need fixing and go fix them. Are you looking for a randomizer to be installed? 
Uh, no, I don't <laughs> think the randomizer is the solution. Please, Lord, no. <laughs> uh, speaking of arcs, though, we did get a couple of references that suggest that although I take Chimnall at his word that this series is going to be episodic at its core, it looks like there are going to be a couple of things just sort of sprinkled in a la Bad Wolf uh, back in series one. Yeah, there's a little Timeless Child reference, which, uh, I mean, I'm probably, there's probably 500 million people who are already screaming, Susan! Um, <laughs> there's definitely a hint that there's something that the doctor has forgotten. You know, there, I, I, I never really bought him when he said there wasn't going to be an arc. You're, you're going to have an arc. It is modern television. That's, that is what is going to happen. But, uh, it'll be curious to see exactly where we are going with this. Yeah, also a reference to the Stinza again, the same villains from last time. You know, I figure that Chibnall, when he said that there wasn't going to be an arc, he was actually talking about he he wasn't going to be bringing back the arc in space. Chip, you're fired from the podcast again. <laughs> Over to you, Mary Berry. <laughs> Moving on, Planet of Desolation interesting. The special effects were a little bit fun this time around. You've got killer bandages, which managed to be somewhat creepy, but were killer bandages. Uh, (laughs) There uh, was some fantastic scenery to work with, and they made it feel proper scary going around on this planet in which everything seems to be able to kill you. This is Mark Tondrai's episode. He did a fantastic job directing it, really giving it a scary edge, even when there wasn't a ton visually really to work with. I think the actors are getting used to staring at green screens and, you know, little balls of green being waved around on wires and things like that. It was a proper threatening episode. Yeah, um, they're definitely watching the budget. There was the one scene where the doctor looks off screen and says, oh, look, uh, an impressively locked door and waves her sonic screwdriver and there's the sound effect and she walks through. You never see the impressively locked door. You know, little little tricks like that to keep things within the budget. Um, One of the best effects that I liked so much was on the episode's ship when they're jettisoning the back of it. The, The door closes and... At some point, they switch from the set that was behind that door to green screen, and that set just sort of falls away into space. And that just looked really, really good. I loved that. (laughs) Um, Arwell Wynn Jones has done some great work. There's a good YouTube video about his work on the new TARDIS set, of which we'll talk in a bit. I do feel like the show is missing Michael Pickwood a bit, because he just had this uncanny ability to do everything in the world with a dollar 25 cents worth of budget and i think things look to my eyes slightly cheaper than they did but then you have tonderized direction and you have the camera work and all of this other stuff so i do think in in the aggregate the show has never actually looked better it's just that they're making it look better with different tricks and different strategies. It's a different style of filmmaking. It definitely is. Let's talk a little bit about the story this time around, because there were a lot of very sort of interesting messages that were being run through this. I wasn't the only one to notice the Stronger Together reference, was I? 
Nope, 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 nope. You know, there's very much the doctor standing up and standing against nihilism and standing against the me above all else, you know, I got mine nonsense. You know, she's thinking deeply about the big questions that are at play and what the implications are. You know, if it was up to Epso, he would just try to barrel his way through this course and not think at all about what was going on and what it means. And it probably would have killed him. You know, it's the doctor that has to stop and say, whatever injustice was done here, it's not over and done. It's still impacting this planet and it can still come up and kill us now. And that's very interesting deep attitude to have to acknowledge that the past isn't dead. The past uh, still affects the present and can still rise up to kill you now. Along those same lines, we had Ryan try to do his hero moment. Um, He's played a lot of Call of Duty, so he figured that that was the way forward to get them out of things. And ah, yeah, not a great heroic moment, actually, Ryan. Uh, Points for trying, I guess. But the show made another strong point here about, well, as Craig Ferguson once put it. And if there is any hope for any of us in this giant explosion in which we inhabit, then surely that's it. Intellect and romance triumph over brute force and cynicism. Right, Doctor? Absolutely. Yeah, the show put the Doctor's aversion towards guns just sort of in neon lights at this point and all. But there's a manifesto here in this episode for the kind of hero that the Doctor is and the kind of show that this series of Doctor Who is going to try to be. I did really like the way they handled it, though, because, you know, I think I like the doctor's no gun philosophy, but I think sometimes the show romanticizes it and talking about, you know, oh, you know, intellect will always win the day. And, you know, when you deal with the reality of gun violence fairly frequently, you know that it doesn't. And sometimes you are just supremely unlucky and it doesn't really matter. And I think they really needed a solid moment to say not only that this is not good, but also this can get you in trouble. It was very much Mm -hmm. uh, a point of good guy with a gun does not always solve the problem of there are a lot of guns. You know, you've got Ryan barreling out there like it's a hecking video game and going, where's the reload button? Where's the reload button? It's like, it's not a video game, Ryan. It doesn't got a reload button. And, you know, the doctor really kind of forcefully making the point of you weren't ever going to solve the problem by going out and being better with a gun because that's not always going to work. You have to figure out how to uh, stop the guns in the first place. So I thought it was very, very well handled. This story turns on two coincidences. The first coincidence is that Epso and Angstrom are in space at the coordinates where the planet and the TARDIS used to be and are in a position to rescue our heroes. And the second coincidence being that the ghost monument, the end of the race, is in fact the TARDIS. So... Story-wise, you know, things happen to help our heroes get to the end of the quest, uh, and they spend, just as they did last time, a lot of time 
trying to piece together the mystery, in this case, the mystery of the planet and everything that had happened there. But it's all worth it because in the end, after a moment of despair, we finally get onto the deck of a brand new TARDIS. And I'm sorry, I cried because from the music to Jodie Whittaker's performance to all of the waiting game that Chibnall played in the script, that's a really powerful moment when the 13th Doctor and her TARDIS are finally reunited. Come to daddy. It was so beautiful. You know, that was that was an emotional reaction. That was an emotional moment to see them reunited. It's kind of beautiful and impressive that even though they were literally separated across a galaxy, they will find each other. The Doctor will find a way to find the TARDIS. The TARDIS will find a way to get the Doctor back, get her Doctor back. And... That was pretty great. You know, it was a coincidence, but it was a coincidence in the way that the TARDIS is always where it needs to be Mm -hmm. uh, when it's needed. You know, it's the doctor goes to the planet and planet's out of position, but there are... You know, Epso and Angstrom are there because they were trying to get to the planet, too. And the whole race is centered around the idea of getting to the ghost monument during the one in a million times in which it actually materializes and appears on the planet. You know, it's all coming together of Dr. and TARDIS trying to find one another again. And it's a, it's a really interesting tie-in because when the uh, 12th Doctor was regenerating, the TARDIS was displaying some sort of warning, some sort of call for help. And... The Doctor's regenerated, the 13th Doctor falls out, and the TARDIS is still dematerializing and trying to materialize where the source of that distress call came from. There's been some interruptions and some things got in the way and some time has passed, but we're now beginning to see a little bit of what that call for help was. You've got these scientists separated from their families and being forced to develop killer technology at the service of the Stenza. I think we've got our arc right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, But before we go any further, I do want to talk about the TARDIS because the TARDIS was gorgeous. And before we go any further in this conversation, I just need to have a little bit of a snack here. Oh my God, she's got a custard cream. Technically, I've got a vanilla cream because I can't find any flipping custard creams around here. But... Seriously, I grew up with custard creams. Where are they? You can't find them anymore. There's just these cheap vanilla cream cookies. I'm being cheated. Uh, I do appreciate uh, the effort that you put into this sight gag for this podcast. Um, uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, <laughs> I've been called out. <laughs> I'm sorry. I do appreciate that the TARDIS being uh, dimensionally transcendent and sentient and aware has redesigned itself to color and stylistically coordinate very well with the sonic screwdriver that the doctor built in Sheffield. Yes, it's kind of great, though. I love that kind of golden light that goes through it. I like the real alien appearance there. You know, it doesn't feel like a human vessel that's 
kind of sci-fi and futuristic. As much as I loved the 12th Doctor's TARDIS, I kind of like that it's leaning back towards the alien again. You know, it reminds me a lot of the 9th and 10th Doctor's TARDIS, that blending of something organic with something technological, really giving you the sense again that the TARDIS was something that was grown. That it's, it's like those, sort of- uh, it's like those crystals just sort of burst through the floor, right? Yeah, it really kind of looks like that. So it's that it's 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 I mean it's just gorgeous. I can't wait to see more of it in future stories. I wonder if it's a pain to shoot around those pillars in there. Um but uh it it looks fascinating. Yeah, you know, that was one of the reasons why the they got rid of the design for the first 11th Doctor's TARDIS was that it was difficult to shoot in. It'll be interesting to see as well. Before we give our somewhat of thoughts about this episode, I have one very pressing question, Alyssa. Why can no one in fiction ever run perpendicularly away from a crashing spaceship? Too logical, Chip. Too logical. I mean, those the, the ravine wasn't that steep. They could have just gone that way and that way. Too logical. Can't do it. Uh, what are you talking about? What is uh, this nonsense? So I've been a little pedantic about this episode, but it really got me in the feels. Aside from the fact that Yaz needs a lot more to do in the next episode because I don't think she's had enough in these two, I do love the dynamic between these characters. Uh, This feels like a proper TARDIS team. Assuming that they make it back to Sheffield soon, I don't see them just swanning off away from the TARDIS and leaving all this stuff behind. This is a good crew, uh, a good a good cast. Yeah, it's there. You can see their relationship starting to come together. And I absolutely agree. I really need to see a lot more from Yaz in the next story. But I think, you know, they've gone... Out into space, they're heading to the past now. They've got a lot of really fun stuff that they're going to get to do in the future. It feels simultaneously like a brand new show and the same show that we've always loved. This week on The Incomparable Network. If you're not living a low-carb lifestyle like Chip, check out the incomparable second biennial beer review panel featuring IPAs, blech, coconut macaroon stouts, and controversy. It's episode 428, Sour and Smells Like Feet. Deb and Erica talk about their new career as freelance hockey facilitators and the return of regular season hockey on Beginner's Puck. And The Good Place is back, and our own Team Cockroach of incomparable listeners is reviewing it on the TV podcast. All this and more at TheIncomparable.com. So we've seen the trailer and the synopsis for next week's episode, Rosa. And I don't think that I would have ever expected Doctor Who to go to the Deep South and the civil rights movement. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are. You know, I'm still a little bit nervous about the whole thing. It's a a really tricky subject material to be able to handle. And we've discovered that it's not a straight historical episode. There is going to be something involved. Somebody is going to be trying to change history in this moment. We'll see about how that plays out and why. What we do know is that it's written by Mallory Blackman and it's directed by Mark Tondurai. Uh, Mallory Blackman is a black woman uh, who has written... 
a lot of speculative fiction specifically focused on race and somewhat to uh, civil rights. So if there's any team that can tackle this, I think I would trust them to be able to handle it. But that's a bold move to go to the civil rights movement in the United States and to Rosa Parks' story. So cautiously optimistic. I'd say the same thing. I think I had bought into a lot of the popular sort of sanitized mythology around Rosa Parks, that she was just a nice lady who wouldn't say no. And she was a powerhouse. She was a powerhouse of the civil rights movement. You know, she was intentional. She was involved. She was trying to change history with her act of civil disobedience. And I hope that this episode captures her accurately. I don't I don't necessarily have a lot of fear about a British show doing U.S. history because, you know, American shows have done foreign history all the – oh, wait. Hmm. There's a point there, actually. Like you, optimistic. Having hopes, not expectations. There we go. So yeah. next week we'll be back to discuss Rosa. Yeah. And then after that, the synopsis for episode four has already been released. We're not going to talk about it. I wish that that synopsis had not been released because it talks about a plot point that I would prefer not to have known about, honestly. Spiders! That's not the part, but I don't like spiders either. Spiders. Yes, there are going to be spiders in episode four. There's other stuff that I'm just not going to say because I wish I hadn't known it, but... Is Fine. there going to be an extensive long car chase that you could set to ridiculous music? No. Sorry. Third Doctor fans, you'll be laughing. A few other people will ha- share Chip's expression of deep confusion. I'm always deeply confused, but that's because I'm a podcaster and it's in our nature. And you can find more episodes of this podcast at thisweekintimetravel.com. We are also on Twitter at DRWhoThisWeek and on Facebook. I hang out on social media at numeral two minute time lord on Twitter. And Alyssa hangs out on Twitter and Tumblr, where she blogs and reviews at Whovian Feminism. Thanks to Christopher Breen for our original theme music, to David J. Lore for our original podcast logo and avatar. Please review us on Apple Podcasts. Consider becoming a member of the Incomparable Network and tell all your friends about us. We'll see you next time on This Week in Time Travel. Take care. Take care.